I recently listened to an interview with Barbara Kingsolver, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel Demon Copperhead, about her efforts to write the great Appalachian novel. In the winding interview, she eventually begins to talk about life in Appalachia and community there. She says that living in Appalachia, your business ends up being everybody else's business. Any teenager who tries to do something their parents will never find out about, they rarely get away with it. If you make an enemy, you're going to run into them again. Uh, She says, and that's really Appalachian. We are people made of community for better or worse, but mostly I'm going to say for better. You are your people. And when you meet somebody new for the first time, you sit down with them. The first conversation is always the same. I would title the conversation, Who Are Your People? You sit down and you talk about like who you are and what do you do, and then you just keep talking until you find out that your papa is related to their second cousin, or they work together at one time, or you find that point of connection, and then you relax. And then you have whatever other conversation you're going to have. I do this all the time. I love finding the places where different lives intersect. Uh, To prove the point, when we were in Montreat, North Carolina on vacation the other week, we were looking for a restaurant to go to. And when we searched on Google Maps, we saw that there was a new spot in Old Fort, North Carolina, called Whaley Farm Brewing Company. <laughs> now, I knew the story that my fifth great-grandfather moved from South Carolina to the Greenbrier section of the Smoky Mountains, and all the Whaleys who had propagated since 1814 in Sevier County, Tennessee. So I figured surely I'm somehow related to these people who started this brewery. So we had to go visit. We went in and and with enthusiasm and not a small amount of pride, I approached the bar where I met Jess Whaley, one of the owners. And after a brief introduction and hello, I exclaimed, I'm a Whaley too. She kind of smirked and wiped off the bar top and said, yeah, yeah, they've been coming out of the woodwork. (laughs) Not exactly the response I was was hoping for. Um, And so we sat down, and a few minutes later, Chris, the other owner, came out. We chatted for a while. Uh, It turns out that they're not from the mountains at all. They're from Illinois and had moved to Asheville and then opened this brewery, but I went ahead and shared with them somewhere along the lines, they must share our bloodline, um, if not here, at least back in England. Um, And so I told them the stories of the Whaley's in the Smoky Mountains. Then halfway through our first drink, I overhear a conversation from a table or two over, and it turns out there are other Whaley's who have come to this brewery for the exact same reason we have. And so I couldn't help myself. I got up and I walked over and I introduced myself to these folks. And it turns out that Chad Whaley and his wife travel every year from Iowa to the Smoky Mountains um, on their vacation. Now, again, they had no connection to those mountains. I had to educate them as well about who their people were. But as the conversation continued, I found out that Chad Whaley is also a pastor. Uh, He serves in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in a small town in Iowa. Layers of connection, knowing who your people are 
and where you come from, connecting stories and lives together. It is a particular cultural phenomenon. Uh, Flannery O'Connor says, people from the north, they aren't from anywhere. In our lakeside story today, the temple tax collectors are trying to figure Jesus out. Who are your people, they want to know. Where do you come from? They want to find those interconnected narratives, those places of convergence in family life, in workplace. You see, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and the resurrection of the dead, he often sounds like one of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees supported the paying of the temple tax. But other times, Jesus violates the Sabbath, or he disregards the Torah, so he sounds like he doesn't belong to them. So they go to Peter, of course, you know, triangulation at its best, gossip, talking behind somebody's back, you know how it goes. They go to Peter, and they say, your master doesn't pay the temple tax, does he? And Peter says, yes, he does. You see, the Pharisees support the paying of the temple tax. The Qumran community was a a group that lived out in the wilderness. They did not pay the temple tax because they thought the temple establishment was so corrupt that the temple deserved nothing but God's judgment. So Peter has to clarify, who do we belong to? Yes, my master pays the temple tax. Then he goes to Jesus. And in a roundabout way, Jesus explains their position as children of the heavenly king. And so just as earthly kings do not extract taxes from their own children, neither does God expect this kind of payment from God's children. So let's keep track here. Peter says yes when he's asked by the temple tax collectors, does your master pay the tax? But then he goes and talks to Jesus, and it sounds like Jesus is saying no We don't have to pay the temple tax because we're children of God and God doesn't ask that. But then Jesus goes on to say, so that we don't create a scandal, go fishing. And the first fish you catch is going to have a gold coin in its mouth and go turn that coin in in the temple to pay the temple tax. What? (laughs) Besides just the weirdness of that instruction, This goes against every other use of Jesus' miraculous power. That is always to help the ill, the outcast, um, the downtrodden, the outsider, the hungry, the dead. This is a self-serving miracle. Um, And then there's also this reality that in the passage, it never says that Peter actually goes and catches the fish. Um. New Testament scholar Ben Witherington posits that maybe with this line, Jesus is making a joke. Now, jokes are always contextually specific, so I don't know why that's funny, but maybe Peter did. Um, But I like that take. It's like Jesus is making light of the temple tax. He's saying, we don't have to do this, but let's just go ahead. We don't want to butt heads with the temple authorities yet. There's going to be bigger conflicts to come. So, you know, just go out there, grab a fish, pull the gold coin out of its mouth, pay the temple tax, and let's be on with it. And in that response, Jesus positions himself as an enigma. He pays the temple tax like the Pharisees would do. He physically participates. 
But in his reflection and his instructions to Peter, he shows that they really don't need to adhere to the temple tax policy. It's not a core identity marker. Jesus reveals something to us here about himself. He reveals something to us also who would be his followers, the church. He, uh, he takes his faith seriously, the rituals, celebrates the Passover, he reads the scripture. In fact, he takes the prophets more seriously than most of the other religious leaders. But Jesus refuses to allow those rituals, those practices, that identity to erect barriers for the participation and belonging of others. It's a difficult paradox. How do you shape a community of faith gathered around specific practices and specific stories without becoming an insular community? So when I talk about Appalachia and belonging, when I quote Flannery O'Connor that people from the north aren't from anywhere, you might feel some kinship, some sense of belonging, a sense of at-homeness there if you're somebody in the club. But if you are from the north, or if you are a black person from the south, whose family fled Mississippi in the Great Migration because you grew tired of hearing, go back to Africa, you don't belong here. These same stories that create belonging, identity, and connection become words that sting. Distinctive narratives that bind a community, that shape a people, can also be barricades of belonging for others. Jesus calls the church, then, to walk the enigmatic path. We value our stories our scripture, our worship, our testimonies. Jesus pays the temple tax, after all. But don't inflate how we do this Christian life together in a way that others feel they can't participate. They don't belong. Will grew up in rural South Carolina in the 1950s to a single mother. She was a school teacher. His father was in prison. They were members of a small United Methodist church, and when you were 10 years old, every kid in the church participated in the weekly confirmation class. On the last day of the class, the students gathered on the front steps of the church for a picture with the minister. Will approached the church on the last Thursday of confirmation to meet a very upset teacher. Where is your tie? We have a professional photographer here. All the other boys remembered to wear their tie. The preacher is going to be here. Dr. Herbert will be here. 
Ten-year-old Will was stunned, ashamed, angry. He turned on his heel and stormed off through the parking lot. He didn't want to be confirmed anyway. As he was going through the parking lot, the blue Plymouth of Dr. Herbert pulled into the parking lot. Will approached the car as the minister got out. Dr. Herbert, you don't know me, but my name is Will, and, and somehow I forgot that I was supposed to wear a tie today, or my mother never told, told me, or I didn't hear it right the first time. And anyway, I don't want to be in the picture, and I don't want to be confirmed in the first place. Dr. Herbert replied, tie? Why on earth would you be wearing a tie? I am wearing a tie because I am a pastor, and I am forced to wear a tie. <laughs> I don't believe that you've had any theological training. Are you studying to be a full member of the Methodist Church? Yes, sir. Well, I know more about this than anyone else present, and there is nothing in Methodism that says you must be wearing a tie in order to join the church. There's no record of our Lord Jesus ever having worn a tie, and I know the Scriptures. The point of these ceremonials is to get you in the picture. Come along. As they walked back to the group, Dr. Herbert greeted the teacher, and he saw all of the confirmands there for their picture on the front steps. What a good-looking group, Dr. Herbert exclaimed. I only have one request before we take the picture. Boys, please, no ties at the church on a Thursday. Uh, only I am allowed to wear a tie at church on a weekday. Wear them on Sundays if you must, but for now... Please remove your ties. Now, let's go take that picture. Temple tax or not, a fish with a coin in its mouth, an enigma. The point of these ceremonials is to get you in the picture.